Hey, it's Todd Duncan. Thanks a million for listening to our podcast. Before you actually jump into today's episode, I want to tell you about a new resource that I've created called Connect. Our market has changed dramatically. Our world has changed dramatically. The last couple of weeks and especially the last couple of months continue to serve up to us change. I created Connect as a resource to help guide people through the challenging environments in which we find ourselves and to make sure that you and your business come out stronger on the other end than you were before this whole thing started. Click the link in the podcast show notes to sign up and learn more about Connect. Hey, it's Todd Duncan. Welcome to High Trust Today, the podcast. I'm on a quest to help people win in business and in life. To do that, I know they must trust themselves, their relationships, their business, and they most certainly must trust their future. When you do that, you set in motion a universe of possibilities, and that journey begins right now. I want to talk to you about the art of trust-based business relationships. Last month, we introduced you to the 14 laws that are found in our new book, High Trust Selling. And you'll recall those as we go through the lesson, as we drop maybe a law here or a law there to prove a point. But I think it's important to understand that this idea of trust is something you can never stop learning about. I'm absolutely convinced that most people don't know how to create it. I'm even more convinced that those who do don't pursue it with this level of intensity of just owning it. How can I constantly, every single day in my business, figure out how to create higher and higher levels of trust? Many people don't even know how to define it. They don't know what it is. And yet in the very businesses that you're in, you know that trust is a prerequisite to doing the kind of business that you know that you want to do and and ultimately making the sale. In our libraries in San Diego, we have over 2,000 pages and hundreds of hours of recorded material on this one topic, trust. I've made a decision that I'm going to study it like I've never studied anything in my life. You need to make that decision also. Trust is where it's at. Trust training is the best training you'll ever get. Sales training is wonderful, but I think trust training is probably even more profitable. And so as we use our time together on the selling edge, it would be important for us to start off with a question, what is trust? And in your notes, I have an excerpt from our new book, High Trust Selling, and I want to share this with you as we get warmed up for this lesson. Long-term sales success happens when high trust exists, when you are a trustworthy salesperson running a trustworthy sales business, when it's clear to your clients that you're a person of integrity that will not only do what you say, but who also has the means to deliver. A trustworthy person will do everything in his power to follow through on what he has promised, and that's very important. But if a trustworthy person is not an efficient salesperson running an efficient sales business, trust will only go so far. It may land a sale or two, but it rarely will go beyond that. High trust is necessary to climb to the top, whether you're selling cars or copiers, hats or home loans, footwear or financial services. And high trust happens by design, not by accident. It's earned and preserved, never finagled. Despite what you've read or been taught to this point in your sales career, it takes more than fortitude and flattery to become great in the sales profession. That's because establishing high trust with prospects and producing high sales with clients is about your ability to develop and maintain loyal relationships, not your propensity for persuasion. And another thing, high trust selling is not about you. It's about them. It's about the prospects and the clients whom you serve. The fact is that you'll never be genuinely successful in the sales profession if you're self-centered. You can go to the bank on that one. But there's another thing that you can go to the bank on. If you are a trustworthy salesperson running a respectable, reliable sales business, you will succeed in the sales profession in less time than you think and with much less stress than you're accustomed to. More than that, with high trust on your side, you will climb to the top of your industry and remain there. So we have to understand at the very, very basis of building A high-trust business is, first of all, being a high-trust person. To be a trustworthy salesperson is a prerequisite for building a high-trust business. One is a relational issue. The other is a delivery issue, and both of those have to be balanced. Let's go to the definition that we can pull out of exhaustive definitions on the word trust. And as I think about some of the main things that apply to you as a sales professional in business that answer what is trust, they are things like this. To have trust or faith. To place reliance in. Be confident. To believe in the honesty and integrity of another. To rely or depend on. To put something in the care of another. To do something without fear of the outcome. 
I mean, trust is about faith. It's about clients having faith in you. It's about your customers having faith in you. It's about reliance. It's about them placing reliance in you and having that confidence in you. It's to believe in your honesty and your integrity. It's to really become reliant or dependent on you to deliver the goods and to do it consistently. The word care, trust is about care. It's about moving forward with somebody without fear. And when we think of this, it's interesting that most people don't really even know how to define trust in the sales kind of vernacular. But then furthermore, most people don't really realize that there are two different kinds of trust. And what's important from a sales perspective is to realize that both are necessary, both exist, one you have control over, one you don't have control over. And when you start to realize how this will play itself out, I think you'll find that the application of it in your sales business could be nothing short of profound. Let's hit trust, and let me tell you the two forms that trust comes in. In your notes, number one, the first type of trust a salesperson can develop is called transactional trust. Transactional trust. Transactional trust is described as follows. Economic forces create transactional trust that either drives the avoidance of negative outcomes or the attainment of positive outcomes. Okay, so just ponder that. Economic forces that create transactional trust that either drive the avoidance of negative outcomes or the attainment of positive outcomes. Here's some examples. A buyer chooses a salesperson because of a low cost or a low rate. Another example, a buyer chooses a product because of the positive features that reduce the long-term expense. A prospect chooses a salesperson because of advertised costs or fee or rate promotions. A prospect chooses a salesperson because of their confidence in the salesperson's capability and competence in delivering the product or service. So four different kind of definers right there of in your business and in most sales businesses, a good amount of time, the decisions to do business can often be made on those things. All right. Now, one might argue already at the start of this lesson that you need to have those things be competitive. And you're right. Okay. But when we start to look at the second form of trust, what we start to look at is a different kind of trust that really has two of the same driving forces behind it, but they are not economic. Okay, and let's go ahead and take a look at number two in your notes. The second type of trust a salesperson can develop is relationship trust. So now you know the two kinds of trust. We have transactional trust. We have relationship trust. Relationship trust is defined as follows. Emotional forces create relationship trust that either drives the avoidance of negative outcomes or the attainment of positive outcomes. So staying there for just a moment, the motives are the same, okay? In either case, we are either as a prospect or buyer attempting to avoid negative outcomes or attain positive outcomes. Decisions are made on whom to do business with and on where to place business based on those two things happening all the time. In this room today, I happen to know that not only do we have a lot of world-class sales professionals, but we have their world-class team members. And they're here today to recognize and to figure out between today and tomorrow ways in which they can create more trust for their clients. What are some of the things that they can do more transactionally that will create higher levels of trust? What are some of the most frequent outcomes that your customers would think are negative that they want to avoid? And so they'll place business with you rather than with somebody else. What are some of the positive outcomes that they want to attain that because of your systems or your service culture or your foundational platforms, they know they'll be able to get that? And at the same time, we have those very same people as well as others who are making decisions all day long, not because of necessarily the economic transactional trust elements, but the relationship trust elements. There's something that is more emotional than just simply attractive products, attractive prices, attractive systems, so on and so forth. Now, what's interesting is as we look at the emotional or the relationship trust, let's go and look at some definers there. This would be uh, examples. Buyer chooses a salesperson 
because of his or her committed long-term interest in their welfare. Okay, so now start to look at this. You have a buyer that might be choosing you because you have a relatively competitively priced product. You have a relatively competitive type product. You can deliver that product in a relatively competitive manner, all right? And yet, there are other people who do what you do that can do exactly the same thing that you might be able to do. So we have to go a level beyond transactional trust and understand that relationship trust is where that person would not only choose you because of that, but because they also see, and more importantly see, that you have a committed long-term interest in their welfare, making sure the product is not only sound now, okay, but five years from now, making sure that the systems that are in place to provide the delivery now are equally as committed to providing the delivery later. The buyer chooses a product because it helps them achieve their long-term goals. Okay, that's a sense of a relationship trust because you have demonstrated how the product helps them achieve their long-term goals. But the thing that really kicks that into gear is you understand their long-term goals. That's relationship trust, where you marry the product to those goals. A prospect chooses a salesperson because of his or her commitment to strategically partner to assist in the achievement of meaningful personal and professional goals that the prospect has long-term. So one of the things that should be screaming to the front of your brain right now as you listen to this month's lesson is the idea that the relationship trust far more is a trust that comes through the understanding of clients' long-term objectives. And merely knowing what those objectives are helps to establish that trust. But marrying product recommendations and pricing solutions to those long-term goals and long-term awarenesses that you have through effective dialoguing skills and listening skills and interviewing skills takes the transactional trust and absolutely leverages it to the highest level possible. And you'll see how all this comes together as we continue down this path. It's a fascinating topic, though, when you just think about the idea of this continuum of trust. There are two things happening all the time in the mind of a client as they are thinking about doing business with you or thinking about stopping to do business with you and starting to do business with somebody else. There are two things happening in a buyer's mind all the time as they're thinking about, do I work with this salesperson and let this salesperson you know, help me acquire whatever it is I want because of how much he charges? Or do I let him help me acquire what I want because he's really clear on what I want long-term versus just right now? And then deciding, okay, where are you in terms of sales practices? Where is your team in terms of sales practices? Where is your company in terms of sales practices with this understanding that there are two kinds of trust. So let's look at the trust continuum that we've built for you and have you begin to understand how this blends itself to be a package of creating high trust. You'll see a couple lines and you'll notice under the first line that you have on one side of the continuum to the far left, we would write the word in transactional trust. On the far side of that same line, we would write in the word relationship trust. And you'll find that at any given time, you and your company and your clients are going to be somewhere on that continuum. Okay? One is a high stress area generally for most salespeople. Another is a lower stress area. Okay, And you begin to see this as we go forward as well. Below that, aligned with what you have above it, underneath transactional trust is another continuum. The further left we go towards transactional trust issues, the more economic considerations matter. Okay, So the further to the left we are on this, the more important it will be that you have the lowest price for your product or that you have the best product in terms of performance or in terms of interpretation of value. The further to the left you get, the overall cost of acquiring the product from you to work with you becomes more and more of a concern. And generally speaking, most salespeople that spend a lot of time on the far left are in high stress environments because in most cases, if not all, they don't have any control over a lot of that. Okay, over to the right, you can't go all the way to the right without being competitive on the left because merely having emotional considerations, which is below relationship trust, will not always get you the sale. 
Okay, so we can create high trust with a prospect by dealing with the emotional issues and getting to the heart of the matter, if you will, and understanding the, you know, what's important about success to you, what's important about this product to you kind of questioning process. But to be all the way over on the right is not healthy either because there has to be at least a competitive foundation of product and price that you deliver consistently for these two things to marry. So what we'll do through the balance of this lesson is talk about not only how do we use this trust continuum and how do we move through three basic levels of the continuum? But we also then have to ask ourselves, how do we do this with our team? How can our team begin to do this? And then finally, we have to ask ourselves, how does this translate to taking trust up as high as possible? As we think about this, it's important for me to just make a comment to all of you. I mean, most salespeople wake up in the morning thinking that it's time to go make sales. And where I'd like you to be from now on is it's time to go build trust. And what I want you to realize that you and your team will make more sales if you focus on creating higher levels of trust. So the sale becomes the outcome to the process of building high trust relationships. Okay? If we focus on trust, we get more sales. If we focus on sales, we build less trust. And you'll watch how this all works itself out. As I was building this lesson and thinking about the implication of not only the book, High Trust Selling, but also what our commitment is to helping salespeople worldwide learn how to build trust intentionally, I asked myself, what are some of the lessons on trust that are critical? What are some of the lessons that you as a sales professional and your team need to absolutely understand? I've written these in your notes. Go ahead and let me say them and then let me explain them as you read them. Lesson number one, the only way to earn trust is by first being trustworthy. So you and your team need to understand that trust absolutely begins with the human being. Okay? Everybody on your team, every assistant you have on your team, you yourself have to understand that you have to be trustworthy first with a trustworthy business, which implies trustworthy systems, reliable systems, systems your clients can count on, so on and so forth. You have to have those in place before you'll ever be able to maximize high trust with your clients. Number two, the second lesson is relationship trust is irrelevant if transactional trust doesn't exist. Okay, and we need to balance this. I think that as I reflect on the years of sales training and trust training that we have offered through our High Trust Sales Academy, through obviously the book, through our Sales Mastery CD series that we've done over the years, and as I think that through, I think there's been some overcorrection or some maybe overdoing, if you will, where people have completely gone to the level of all we have to do is create relationship trust and we'll be successful. Now, what we have proven out is that relationship trust will generally reduce some things that are transactionally related, like pricing and costs and so on and so forth. It doesn't alleviate it. There's only so far trust will take you if the same product you have that your competitor has is priced 200% higher with you than with them. I mean, there's only so much we can do with this. So we've got to balance it out. Your products and your pricing then have to be competitive. Number three, the third lesson is a focus only on relational trust issues does not get you the sale. A focus only on relational trust issues does not get you the sale. So we've got to balance those out. Now, as we work through this, we're going to take that continuum you just saw, the two lines, and we're just going to make it go vertical. You don't need to think that way any more than I've just shown you up here as you watch my hands. And we've built what we call the three P's of trust to help you realize that those continuums are now, instead of horizontal, vertical. And there's some dynamics that begin to happen as you think this through. Transactional trust in its purest form would be at the bottom of the pyramid. Relationship trust in its purest form would be at the top of the pyramid. Watch the dynamics as we work through this. Bottom of the pyramid, the pyramid's broken into three levels. The continuum would be broken into three categories. The category at the bottom is the priced focused category, totally a transactional trust level. And here are three dynamics about a business that's at that level. Number one, the salesperson has low control. Low control on what? Well, salesperson has low control on almost everything. They don't create the product. They don't design the product. They don't decide how much the product's going to cost. They don't do any of that stuff. They really don't have control over that, short of maybe waiving their commission or you know, getting approval to lower the cost of the product. They really don't have a lot of control. 
a salesperson who stays down in a price-focused sales business only can deliver short-term value. And that would be defined upon and by how much the product costs because that's the short-term value. Remember, again, economic considerations that people either want to avoid or get. Okay, And so, again, that's how we're dealing with this. And a salesperson who is in that category of transactional trust focusing on price mostly never creates market differentiation. And all you have to do is look at your business and understand that there are thousands of you that aren't here that hang out in that bottom category, and there is no market differentiation. It's called a vanilla scenario, and somebody can go anywhere and get the same thing. So what I find as perplexing is this. Why do so many salespeople, why does the largest percentage of salespeople spend most of their time down there? Now, I'm not implying that you as this group listening to the Selling Edge recording here live in San Diego are in that category. I do believe maybe many people on your team might be there, not by design, but by maybe ignorance, maybe not knowing that there is a better way to play the sales game than to be in this bottom category. But I guess that provides really the tremendous opportunity of what high trust selling provides for everybody, and that is the further you get away from price-focused businesses, okay, generally the greater levels of trust and business you'll create. Fewer people are going to be at the top. It's narrower. Many people are at the bottom. It's wider. Okay? The people at the top and the people at the bottom will merge somewhere in between, not that they come down or that these come up, but they all have to talk about product, don't they? doesn't matter whether you're a relationship trust salesperson or a transactional trust salesperson. At some point, you've got to talk about the what? The product. However, if we focus only on the product which side of that continuum would it fall on, transactional or relational? It'd fall on the transactional side, okay? Now, as we move up the pyramid, the product-focused salesperson still has low control. And all you have to do to test this is ask the question, when was the last time you sat down and designed the actual product you sell? Okay? You don't have any control over that. You may be able to give your manager feedback on product modifications or what kind of loan you want to have the company get so you can you know, give that out to your borrowers or at least represent it in the marketplace as something that has availability. But the lion's share of salespeople don't have product control. You don't. Okay? However, the right product can deliver longer-term value. And we've not seen that any more clearer than we have in your business I mean, helping a buyer select the right program to help him purchase his home has, in that moment in time, the greatest opportunity to create either short-term or long-term value. And a product integrated into the long-term goals of the client and the financial considerations of the client is a product that delivers longer-term value. I believe that to the extent the right product is chosen, this is important, based on long-term goals that your prospects have, that will start to cause market differentiation. you got people in your business today that simply sell the product they like. Okay? There is no deciphering at all as to whether or not this product is truly the best long-term product for the customer. All right? Those who understand product intimacy, those that understand product integration, those that understand making sure the product does marry to the client's long-term and short-term goals is a sales professional who will be different in the marketplace, okay? Now, having said that then, let's go to the far right of the continuum as we look horizontally or to the very top of the pyramid, and this would be the sales professional that is partnership-focused, okay? Partnership-focused is relationship trust. It's the highest degree of trust that can be established. The salesperson has high control. What do they have control over? The relationship, they have control almost over everything because they have a level of relationship now that gives them the kind of trust that overweighs much of what the salesperson at the bottom doesn't have any control over. Now, does that mean that they have pricing control? In many cases, they do. There's weights and measures that top salespeople are able to employ and deploy within their organizations with management approval or empowerment where they can make different decisions on pricing considerations or adjustments to price or this or that because the trust level is so high and the partnership is so profitable that now all of a sudden it makes sense to be able to have somebody be empowered to do that or in the case that they own their own company, obviously they'll make those considerations and decisions for long term. Now, somebody who is in a relationship trust partnership 
focused environment clearly delivers long-term value because the entire partnership is based on what? Long-term. And here is now one of the big bridges for you and your team who are listening to this live here in San Diego. We need to make sure that everybody on our team understands what our partners' long-term objectives are. We need to make sure that everybody on our team understands what a buyer's long-term objective is. We need to make sure that we have full integration of the client intimacy factor so that as we build relationship trust, everybody on our team knows what the long-term goals are of our partners and clients. Why? Because relationship trust isn't delivered by the salesperson only. It is delivered by the team that he or she has assembled and who have come together for the greater and bigger vision. And I'll share with you some specific strategy that will help with that as we go forward. The salesperson who is in this partnership-focused, top-of-the-pyramid mentality clearly causes market differentiation. It's narrow path. There are fewer of them, all right? And in just the definition of what relationship trust is all about, they will be different. Now, here's what's interesting as I began to play with this. What are the volume dials that surround this pyramid, if you will, the three P's of trust? Upper left-hand corner, you see the word increase. Upper right-hand corner, you see the word decrease. Lower left-hand corner, you see the word decrease. Lower right-hand corner, you see the word increase. Let's go to the left. As a salesperson moves from a price-focused to a partnership-focused plan of action, the risk-reward of his business increases. Okay? The bonding opportunity with the partner increases. The information exchange between salesperson and partner increases. The number of people he or she needs on his or her team increases. And the level of trust increases. One of you said this morning to me in private conversation that my limiting beliefs of yesterday can come back to haunt me today. Something to that effect. Okay, and I think that what I need to say here is even though you may understand this and go to the partnership level, what happens if you lose sight of what got you there and you start to go back? Well, here's what happens. The risk-reward decreases, lower risk, lower reward. Okay, anybody can hang down at the price focus level and not have any risk or reward. Okay, bonding goes down. There won't be as much of it. The amount of information you get will be much less. You won't need as many people on your team and you will not have as much trust. Let's go over the right side. Okay, left side is increased stuff as we move from the bottom to the top. Right side is decreased stuff as we move from the bottom to the top. A salesperson that moves from a price-focused business to a partnership-focused business, these things happen at the very top. The salesperson options decrease. In other words, the higher up I go on this pyramid, the less salespeople I will have to compete with, therefore, less salesperson options will be available to my clients. That's pretty cool, right? Okay, if there's less options, there's going to be more longevity. Price sensitivity, what? Goes down. The higher up I go on the pyramid with a buyer, the higher up I go on the pyramid with a partner, the less price becomes the sensitive issues. Okay, is it still important? Yes, that's called transactional trust. Is it everything? No. Features focus. The higher up I go, the less my prospects care about all the features that my products may have. I don't even have to talk about those because trust is there. They just want to know that it's what? The right product for them. And tension, the higher up I go, what? Decreases dramatically. So what we have to do and what you have to do is ask yourself, and I have my team ask themselves, where are you on this pyramid? My desire would be for all of you to be partnership focused to have only partnerships with your buyers and your prospects who have become clients, to have aggressively and competitive resources that deliver the product, and to just know that you're in the hunt financially, that the cost of acquiring your product is reasonable. The industry, though, however, is split unequally, and that is roughly 90%. If I were just to throw a dart, 90% of the salespeople that are in your industry spend their time, 90% of it, at the bottom. Now, the good news in that for people like you is you get to fill the other 10%, which now you know creates most of the business anyway, and that's the exciting thing about the three P's of trust. Now, here's what's interesting. One of the laws you remember from last month is we shared the 14 laws for the first time with salespeople everywhere. One of the laws is called the law of the scale. 
And in your notes, it says the law of the scale is way more to few and many will want you way less to many and few will need you. Where on this pyramid would you weigh the most to your clients, the bottom or the top, the top? If you weigh more to few, you will need less partners. If you weigh more to few, okay, price will matter at least. If you weigh more to few, you'll have more longevity and more loyalty. If you weigh more to few, you will attract others who want somebody that weighs more to them. Okay, to use weighing and scale as a metaphor here. So when you think this through, it, I think births, if you will, 10 character traits that have to be considered if you're going to build trust-based relationships. Okay? Let me give these 10 to you, and then we'll continue down our path together as we explore a couple more elements of this. Okay? The sales professional in trust-based relationships gives us 10 critical character traits that we all have to consider. Two people coming together that would like to have a relationship trust partnership must, number one, understand that there is a compelling reason to partner. Okay? You are talking to people all day long that are gates through which you go to get an end user who will use your product. Right? All day long, you got people that are that gateway to the end user of the product that you sell in the market that you are in. As we look at the gatekeepers, if you will, and I don't know that you've ever thought necessarily of a real estate agent as a gatekeeper. I don't know that you've thought of a financial planner as a gatekeeper or you've thought maybe of a estate planning attorney as a gatekeeper. But I want you to start to visualize this because behind the gate is the end user that you must have access to. If you don't have access to the end user, None of this, the other stuff that we're talking about matters, okay? So now the question is, what is the compelling reason for the gatekeeper to want to partner with you, okay? What is your compelling reason to want to partner with them? Now, let me demonstrate this by reminding you of another law that you heard last month. One of the laws in the book is called the law of the hook. And the law of the hook says a captivated audience stays to the end, all right? You want a buyer to stay with you till the end, and the end might be what? 25 years from now, okay? You may want a real estate professional to be so hooked by you that they stay with you till the end. When is the end? 15 years, 20 years, you know? Who knows when it is, but it's much longer than next Friday for most of them, right? The question that you have to ask yourself is if you were in their shoes would you respond to what you're trying to do, and is it compelling enough? Said another way, is what you do say or hand out significant enough to, if you gave it to you, you'd do business with you? The law of the hook. Most salespeople haven't thought this one through. What is it that I'm going to say? What is it that I'm going to do? What is it that I'm going to send? What is it that I'm going to promote that would be compelling enough Okay? To cause somebody to say, I'll stand in line for that. I'll wait. And by the way, I'm not leaving till the very end, whenever that end is. We think about that and we think about just illustrations, books that you've read. What causes you to read a book to completion? It's got hooks everywhere, right? That keep you captivated, that keep you staying. What causes you not to walk out of a movie prematurely? It's got embedded hooks that keep you, that keep you there, right? What causes you not to walk out of a restaurant mid-meal? Okay, each experience is compelling enough, good enough, the senses are peaked enough to cause you to what? Stay to the end. What causes you to stay to the end of a good ball game? Okay, there's a hook there. Maybe it's a tie score, all right? What causes you to stay to the end of a concert? You know, maybe it's the best concert you've ever seen. So salespeople need to understand that if I'm going to build trust-based relationships, there has to be not only this hook that what? Gets them signed on to the opportunity, but then constantly I and my team have to deliver what? Hook after hook after hook after hook to keep them there for life. And that's a powerful consideration as you think this through. The same would hold true then if they are the gatekeeper, behind them is the end user, you must do the same thing with the end user frequently throughout the year. 
So now the question might be, as you and your team are here listening to this, what are the intentional hooks that you and your team have put into place so that between the time you start with a buyer and the time you end with a buyer, they're hooked five times, six times, eight times, you know, catch and release, catch and release, and you just keep catching the same person with the same hook because it's part of the what? Design. How are your teams trained to hook your client on every phone call? Okay. What are they doing? What are they saying? How are they doing it? How are they saying it? What do they see on the screen, the contact record, that has implications to the long-term goals and ideals and values that the client has that they can in a moment bring to the top of mind and conversation? Right there on the screen, it's flashing. These are the top five values my client has. These are the top three needs they have. Immediately, we can reinstitute trust, rehook the client. It's compelling. Intimacy is compelling. When a client knows you care, which is part of the definition of trust, trust happens. And it's up to you today, it's up to you this weekend for you who are live here in San Diego to figure out some of those thoughts. Number two, the second critical character trait that has to be considered in building high trust relationships is this. There is a dedicated team supporting the partnership. We have a brand new product that's being released in six weeks called the Assistance System. This is 10 hours of newly recorded information where we've really gone and looked at some teams. There's a lot of great teams out there. We've looked at some teams and we've looked at what makes those teams work. What are some of the characteristics of those teams? How do they put them into play? And we've recorded new CD information on job descriptions and titles and performance and compensation and things like this. And we really arrived at a point that we needed to kind of unify this. And first of all, what is a dedicated team? A dedicated team is a team that's committed to the ideals of the client. Okay, which means you've got to understand what the client's ideals are. Okay, dedicated to put the team before the individual accomplishment. Dedicated to understand their role. And we defined four roles. We defined the role of the production assistant. We defined the role of the transaction manager or operations manager. We defined the role of the production partner. And we defined the role of the marketing manager or the client services director or the client relationship manager. Those four people and the salesperson have to come together to run a substantially sizable business, as we would quantify that in the business that you all are in. But dedicated teams supporting the partnership. I believe that one of the strongest truths that needs to come out if you're going to build the kind of partnerships we're asking you to build is the idea of building it with a team that is unified, that is seamless, that is dedicated to the goals and the vision and the understanding that we're going to play at the top of the pyramid. Number three, there is a willingness. Most salespeople don't think this way. Okay? It's paradigmatically different than most people think because they just aren't there with it. If I'm in the price-focused business, I'll never get number three. If I'm in the relationship or the partnership-focused business, it'll be because I get number three. Number three is there is a willingness to make shared and significant commitments to take mutual risk. Okay? Let me give you one classic example that applies to your business. Shared and significant commitments to take mutual risk. Maybe to use a real estate agent as an example... A willingness to make a significant commitment and take risk would be, I will use you and use you exclusively. Okay? Maybe on your side it would be, I'm going to serve you and only three others and not the 32 others that I'm currently taking piecemeal business from. That's a perfect example of a mutual shared commitment, okay, that involves risk. Right? It does involve risk to narrow the number of clients you have. But that risk is eliminated when you have a dedicated team with a compelling reason to partner because you will then get the yield of more business out of that partnership. Number four, decisions for the partnership are made based on mutual long-term value-added scenarios. So if I'm going to build a high-trust business with people, Decisions for that partnership are going to be based on mutual long-term value-added scenarios. How do we mutually add value to each other for the next 10 years? That's a question that most of you have not answered. When you're looking at the people that are the gateways through which you go to get the end user that is called the buyer in your business, the question is how are we going to be adding value? What's the value-adding plan to each other for the next 10 years? 
Okay? Most of us don't know what the 10-year vision is of some of the people we call on that are our gateways. We've got to know what that is because that's how we add value. How together, watch this, what's the mutual plan for the partner and I together with our respective teams to deliver value to the clients long after the sale is completed? Number five, critical business information is shared freely. Things like goals, business plans, technologies, profitabilities, critical business information is shared freely. Here's some of the tests, you know, do you have the business plans in your office of your key partners? Do your key partners have your business plan in their office? Do they know what your plan is? Do you know what their plan is? Do you have a copy of each other's plans? And then is it referred to as often as you have partnership planning sessions? If you don't have that, you're not sharing critical business information. Let me ask you a question. Do you know for your key gateway clients what their profitability per transaction is and what their goal would be? Do they know yours? Do they know your profitability? Do they know how they could play a role in helping you become even more profitable? Because let's face it, if we've got the pinnacle of partnership focus done at the very top of the pyramid, what should the relationship be about? It should be about both of us helping to improve each other's what? Bottom line. Just a thought. Number six, there is total open and honest communication. There is total open and honest communication. Do you know how many salespeople are afraid to be honest with their prospects because they are held in fear by the idea that if they are honest, they might lose business, yet simultaneously don't like the way in which they're getting business? Go figure that one out. I don't understand that, all right? I think that in order to go up, you've got to grow up, and I think that's not only an intellectual grow up, but it's the epitome of understanding that that's how partnerships go up. They don't start up. They start down and they grow up. And you've got to have that kind of commitment. But I'm telling you right now, honest and open communication, I believe, is one of the most excellent communication skills a salesperson could develop. I don't want you to misinterpret this, but my observation in the last six weeks is there are two things that have been happening repeatedly in the way that we do business that I don't think, first of all, are good for you, and second of all, I know are not good for me. Based on that observation, would you like to talk about it? The only alternative is to not talk about it and then what? Continue to go upside down in that relationship. Open and honest communication. Number seven, there's a commitment to maintaining confidentiality of the partnership's business particulars. And I think this is important in our business, particularly as we look at best practices. But the higher up you get in this pyramid, the fewer partnerships you will have. Generally, that implies the more structured those partnerships will be, the more strategic those partnerships will be. And with that said, then, the more confidential those partnerships need to be. If I'm working with five real estate agents and, and each one of them are referring $20 million a year in sales to me, each of them may have different ways in which they're doing their business. Simple logic would say, let's just get together and share all those ways. There's a point in time where the competitive advantage could be put at risk in the kind of thinking that we're talking about here. So confidentiality is important. You have to respect that, and that's how you maintain your integrity, which keeps you trustworthy. Number eight, there is a learning and an accepting of the partner's values. There is a learning and accepting of the partner's values. Now, again, this begs the question, as you are listening to this here live and as I look at the eyes of your team members here, and that is, do we know, not only for those gatekeeper clients, what are their top values? Have we accepted those? Have we applied the law of courtship, which you learned last month on the CD last month, and that is the law of courtship is for a relationship to be right on the outside, it must first be right on the inside. And so for our teams to serve relationships the right way, they need to see some of the essence matching that we've talked about in the past and before. For you to help your team, you need to know what those top values are that a client has. We need to make sure that we are totally okay individually and collectively as a team with the values not only our gatekeepers have, most importantly, but then our end users have. 
And if we don't know those, the intimacy factor goes down. Number nine, there's a cross-promotion of partnership success. Let me tell you what I mean by this one. My observation at the top of the pyramid, when you have partnerships that are working very well because relationship trust is at its highest level, those people with whom you partnered do as much if not more to promote you to the clients that they serve than they do to promote themselves. It would be a perfect world where an end-user buyer who has received a loan from you who compliments the real estate agent on the smoothness of the transaction would hear from the real estate agent, I appreciate that, but let me tell you, my lending partner gets the credit. They have built the most phenomenal systems that have allowed you to experience this kind of situation. The lender would do the same thing, okay? The lender would cross-promote the same way. After the transaction is over, after the sale is made, how are you promoting them? How are they promoting you? I would like to see and recommend that part of retention of a customer is about both of you coming together. In fact, I think loyalty is going to be much stronger and retention will be much longer when you have cross-promotion going on rather than paralleled promotion or singular promotion. Just a thought. Finally, number 10, and this is big. There is a commitment for total customer satisfaction. A high-trust partnership cannot be built unless there's a commitment for total customer satisfaction. And that is the prerequisite because it and only it, and this is big for the team members, it and only it leads to customer loyalty. There is uh, an inordinate amount of time and money being spent trying to create loyalty with customers who are not fully satisfied. Fully satisfied clients become your most loyal clients. You can't buy loyalty. You can only retain loyalty. Loyalty happens when satisfaction exists. Okay? Now, as we think about this, let's talk about the team. What is the trust-based team look at and focus on? What do we have to do to make sure that they and you together deliver the most profound level of trust and have the experience for a client be as seamless and as powerful as possible? Follow me as I give you this thought process. And the implications to what I'm about to share with you are nothing short of huge. You need to understand it as we go through it. When a team is involved in delivering the trust well, certain elements must exist. Highly effective teams take the trust that has been established and transferred by the salesperson and create the backdrop that proves capability that demonstrates reliability and secures credibility. Those three things have no price attached to them. So the team is the backdrop that takes the trust the salesperson has developed and then proves that the team is capable, reliable, and credible, all three of which are part of our initial definition of trust. So here's a process, and I adapted this really from the Marriott Corporation, and I found a book that was written by one of the senior marketing guys there, and I adapted this to you as I think about what a trust-based team looks like and as I think about what they and you need to do every single time you have a chance to interact with a customer, it's really these eight things. And the eight things start at the bottom of this, and they build this barrel of value, of money, if you will, an eventual outcome that I think is probably desired by everybody that's in this room and certainly those of you who are listening to the CD. Very bottom of the barrel, trust-based teams start when you and they build a strong foundation. No team has ever succeeded at the level that we know they can succeed at without a strong foundation. Okay? As we look at these eight character traits that have come from observing trust-based teams, it's important that, again, I remind you that it's up to everybody to look at these because you can, in fact, have a role and play a role in each one of these coming true. Every person on the team seems to make every customer feel special. Write those words in. Number two, as we build the strong foundation, then number two is everybody on the team seems to make every customer feel special. 
And I think that all of you right now could probably spend some time this weekend coming up with the list of 10 things that we could do to help our customer feel even more special than the things we already do. And if you have 10 things in place that you already do, how can we take those 10 up or those 5 up? What can we do even better? How can we take it to an even higher level? Okay, number three, and I'm glad you're all here listening to this, but trust-based teams have the courage to set bold goals. Okay, if you're going to be a high-performance team that uses trust as your platform, I would set bold goals. I would go so far beyond where you are and understand that right now the market's doing well for you. There may be a point in time where it's not going to be doing so well. There's been years in the past where it hasn't done well, and there's been years in the past when it's done really well. But the key is it doesn't matter what the market's doing. It matters what you're going to be doing long term. And I would ask yourself and your team, what are the bold goals for the next decade? Where do you want to be in 2012? Okay, here's where I want to go. You want to come with me? Wouldn't it be great to know that your team is in place today for your success tomorrow? And that's really the kind of way we need to think this through. Number four, simplify, simplify, simplify. And when you're done doing that, simplify. Okay? Most of us have made the trust-based pursuit too complex. And I just want to keep it simple. I think that there's ways to keep it simple through automation technology. There's ways to keep it simple through automating less. There's ways to keep it simple by doing less. Let's focus on the few things, the few events, the few hooks that what? Create the greatest impact. Because face it, if a system is too complex, nobody is going to deliver high trust. It's not going to be fun. Nobody's going to show up excited. All right, so continue that process. Number five. This is a good one. Make technology your servant, not the other way around. Make technology your servant, not the other way around. Number six, measure well, act fast. We've deployed in our company the scorecard system. The scorecard system for us has the most important events that we measure, and we can measure them every single day. And we got this idea from John's new books, The 17 Indisputable Laws of Teamwork. And we have a scorecard where we literally score every single day the most important events in our company. And we know where we are relative to where we need to be. I think too often what we end up doing is, A, we don't measure well. And B, we don't act fast because we don't have the information to act on. And so consequently, a month goes by and all of a sudden we've got to change something. Or a year goes by and we've got to change something. So I just, you know, if you're going to simplify and make technology your servant, you can measure well and act fast. Number seven, unleash the power of your people. And I'll talk about this in our final page as we go through this. But I think probably one of the big problems with most teams, besides the fact that most people don't have teams, is that they keep control at the top. And I want you to really understand the power of unleashing the power of your people. I have learned in this strengths, weaknesses kind of evaluation, that the more you focus on fewer things you're good at, the more you must unleash the power of your people. And your people have the ability to take you to levels that you'll never go to yourself. That's called the law of significance. Okay? More will happen with a team than will ever happen individually. Okay? Finally, you and your team need to lead with care. Everybody's a leader. We are all leading somebody, and we need to lead with care. Now, you'll see four boxes at the top of the barrel. Let me tell you what happens if you follow these eight steps using the high trust process. Top left quadrant, you'll have inspired people. Okay? So this top barrel is quadrified. Just you have four different levels to write a couple words in. Inspired people in the upper left-hand corner. Enthused customers in the upper right-hand corner. Trusting relationships in the lower left-hand corner. And financial growth in the lower right-hand corner. So the outcome of these eight things are inspired people on your team, enthused customers that your team has served, trusting relationships in the form of partnerships, and financial growth. Four things. Let me see your hands if you like all four of those. Let me see your hands nice and high if you like all four of those. Okay, great. All right, so in our final then journey, what we want to put kind of as the icing on the cake, if you will, is the concept that turned on trust gets you turned up customers. And customers that turn up, show up, that give you more, that turn up louder by the volumes that they give you, so on and so forth, we all like that. In your notes, it says, creating trust with a customer is likened to the age-old analogy of the bank account. As long as you're putting more into it than you're taking out, you should always avoid being overdrawn. 
If you take too much out of it without the right balance, then you will end up overdrawn and it will show in the amount of business you get from your customers. Here are some final thoughts, 12 of them, to keep your trust turned on. All right, we'll go through these quickly. Number one, if you build trust, people will come to you. Biggest problem with prospecting in sales is most people don't like it because it means they have to what? Go to. All right? Bottom line is you build trust, people will what? Come to. Which one do you like better? Yeah, call reluctance goes away when people come to you. It goes up when you have to go to them. All right? Number two, this is huge, particularly for the team members. This is so big. Focus on creating a client not a sale. High trust is not about asking for the order and getting the business. High trust is doing the right things so that you create a client who gives you what? Every sale opportunity they have. And that's really the thrust here. Number three, this is big. Team members, lock onto this. Anybody listening to this that's got a team, lock onto it. Make every moment of truth a moment of trust. That means every encounter you have with a client and every encounter your team has with a client is a moment of truth. Every one of those moments should become a moment of trust. In other words, when that, whatever it is, is over, they should trust you more than they've ever trusted you to this point. Number four, Constantly inventory your own trustworthiness. Another not-to-do list. What are the top ten things you do that reduce trust? Okay, stop doing them. Okay, most of us are on autopilot. We use the non-thinking approach. Okay, we've got to be a little bit more analytical about ourselves and figure out what it is that we're not doing. I'll give you a perfect example. If you were to track and watch, maybe videotape your team for a week, play that whole thing back. It'd be interesting to find out how many times they commit to a customer in a way that puts trust at risk. I'll call you back in five minutes. And they take eight. Trust has now just been what? Eroded, not built. But to see those things that we would never catch because we're so busy being busy would be some of the greatest breakthroughs of inventory that we could ever have in terms of trustworthiness. Number five, pay attention to the little things. The little things matter. One slip and trust can be wiped out. Number six, back all of your claims with proof. Okay, don't say things to clients, even though you believe them, unless you can prove that they are true. Number seven, walk the talk. Walk the talk. Do what you say when you said you would do it and in the way you said you would do it. Team members, do what you say you'll do for a customer in the way and in the time frame in which you said you would do it. Number eight, pay as much attention to the heart of the matter by contrast to the head. Pay as much attention to the heart of the matter. That's the emotion. Those are the values. Number nine, as hard as it may be, be empathic. Do business from your client's side of the desk. Number 10, keep your power and your ego in check. People are relying on you for some of the biggest decisions in their life. Get on their side of the desk. Get down to their level. Check the ego. Check the power. Put the humility into overdrive and just be their friend. Number 11, practice effective communication skills like pacing and leading as well as listening. Pacing and leading is a neat concept. Most of you have been involved with the DISC system. If you haven't, you need to check with building champions and have them help you with this. But the bottom line is if you're a D, dominant, and you're working with a customer who's an S, steady, you need to become like an S before you'll ever get the S to go with you. So it's called role shifting. And what we basically understand about people is they either move fast or move slow, talk fast or talk slow, talk loud or talk soft. And whatever they're doing, you should do it like them. Why? Because that's pacing, and once you get on their level, then you can lead them to where it is you want to lead them. But if you approach them like you, then you'll have conflict and tension and not trust. I think also, obviously, here, listening is critical. And then finally, number 12, and this is a big one. We talk about this in our new assistant system in depth. Get rid of positions. 
empower the people. By that I mean it's okay to have loosely held lines of job responsibilities and talents and marrying talents with responsibilities. But I want everybody to unify under one thought, and that's this. It doesn't matter what position I have. The single most important thing I should be empowered to do is what? To deliver to the customer a caring solution for their long-term needs. As you think about this exciting concept, trust, as you think about what we've covered in this Selling Edge lesson, it would be important for me to say one final thing about this. Trust happens when you and the business you have built and the people you have surrounded yourself with are committed to trust. It's that simple. Share this with them if they haven't listened to it. Listen to it again. Every single month, we're going to talk about initiatives that will help you build the business of a lifetime. So thanks for listening to this month's edition. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next month.